Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Holy God, author of life, through the power of your Holy Spirit, may we hear and understand what your word has to tell us today. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Hear these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being for in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The Word of God for the people of God. So today is Christ the King Sunday. Uh, today, uh, for those um, church nerds, those liturgical and lectionary um, folk who like to know all the details, this is the last day of the church year. You can imagine that liturgically, tonight should be the New Year's Eve party as we head into the new year, which is represented by the first Sunday of Advent. Now, I haven't been invited to any of your New Year's liturgical parties, so I'm assuming that you're not having one, which is okay. Many of us need to pack so that we can go to our in-laws for Thanksgiving. But it's fair to say that whether you think, how you think about God should be influenced about how we think about Jesus as King, Jesus as Lord, Lord of all. Now, some of you uh, might remember that I really enjoy this little exercise called, What Does God Look Like to You? In fact, when I was a youth director for a brief, brief season, because I was horrible at it, um, I liked to ask uh, the youth every once in a while, tell me what does God look like to you? And so this time I had them break up into groups and had them brainstorm together. I said, don't use the Bible, just use your brains. What do you imagine God to be like um, having lived your life in the church? One of the groups came back and said, we think God looks like a very, very old man. I mean, the kind of man you'd find in a small East Texas town sitting out front of the general store slash gas station slash post office. This old man uh, quite possibly is rocking in a rocking chair with a big faded gray beard and a hat pulled down over his eyes. Probably the hat has the feed store of the county's feed store emblem on it. If you stood close to him, just close enough, you could hear his deep breathing and his subtle snores as he slept in the cool of the afternoon. It's almost as if this old man knows that whatever he does won't matter. Or maybe he's so tired of all the things that have happened in the world, he just naps his days away. Now, there was a second group that came up with a particular picture and image of God. Again, what do you imagine God to be like given your experience of life up to this point? Another group said that they came up with a picture of a powerful king 
one who spent his days in his throne room, gazing over all his subjects. With a command, he dispatches troops to put down rebellions and punishes unruly servants. He is surrounded by opulence, and his entire court is filled with people who are employed by him. There's the royal chef, and the royal waiter, and the royal back-scratcher. I'm glad you were listening. And the royal pillow fluffer. The king is so powerful that he's rarely affected by the commoners in his kingdom. Actually, if the truth be known, he rarely thinks about his people. He often thinks about other things, kingly sorts of things. Any of these images hit you? Maybe not now. You're, you're, you're fully formed, mature Christians with all the knowledge and experience that you need. But maybe further back in your Christian growth, did you think that it seemed as if God was the absent old man rocking in the chair in the cool of the afternoon? Or that God was so powerful but yet not so connected that God could do anything if we could just get his attention? Anybody? Anybody? I mean, these images of God are powerful, that when we ask people the question, what is God like, we get some standard answers, right? I remember um, uh, Amy was in the education program at Stephen F. Austin, um, and uh, they have this wonderful lab where they'll take the teachers that are kind of coming up through the program where you got to teach kids in a preschool and be observed. It was amazing, right? And so all of her friends were education folk, right? And we all went to First Knack, and we all volunteered because we were just, you know, uh, do-gooders and overachievers. And um, Amy and her friends would volunteer in the preschool Sunday school program. Um, I, I volunteered being a, um, a, a responsible adult in the youth program. Um, and some of her friends were so funny, they told this story about how um, the first week they were there uh, working with the preschool kids, um, they're really having a hard time getting this curriculum to work. And so just in case, one of them brought a bag of Hershey's Kisses. And as they would um, want to get the kids involved, the kids weren't paying attention, didn't know who they were. And so um, she'd pull out a Hershey's Kiss and say, who wants to sit at the table? And they'd all go sit at the table and she'd pass out Hershey Kisses. And then they'd ask a question. They'd say, um, you know, uh, we're studying about Jonah and the whale. What is Jonah's story? And they'll ask little questions. And if they answered the right question, they got a Hershey's kiss. It was, I, I was a psychology student. I was like, I know what you're doing. It's called Skinner's behavioral modification, but whatever, right? It got to the point where weeks later, when, they, when the kids would see the Hershey bag, they would start spouting words because they'd learn there was a closed set of vocabulary words here. And they'd be like, Jesus, God, grace, Bible, Holy Spirit. It's a chocolate fest in there, right? Sometimes when asked, what does God look like? We revert to those standard answers because in the past we had been affirmed for those standard answers. And so when we say, what is God like? People say all powerful, omniscient, all knowing. They, uh, we, we think to ourselves about all of these large words um, that God is like a version of us, but he can do so much more. God is all-knowing. God is um, all-forgiving. God is able to see through people and things and all of our vain attempts at what we want to do. God is uh, omnipresent. He can be anywhere at all times. It's almost as like we've viewed God as this picture of someone who is bigger, better, faster, stronger, and smarter than all of us. We dream of a God who is superhuman, 
But the Bible describes a God that is, instead of all those things, all loving, all caring. And though powerful, it's very interested in us. When we think about a God described by Scripture, we begin to see a God whose power is the power to be moved, to feel compassion for others. Now, this is interesting. When we think about love, right? Um, in the English language, we, we have one word for love. In the Greek language, there are multiple words, right? Um, in the Greek language, there's love for brother, love for family. Um, there's love for uh, lover. There's love for others. But here, um, we use I love football and I love my wife to be interchangeable. So what really does love mean? What does it mean to have a God who is, whose power is moved to have compassion, to love for others? Well, love means um, a willingness to take risks. Love means giving to someone else in such a way that there's a real cost to yourself. Love means doing something that there might be a chance to be rejected, a chance to feel the pain of someone else's loss. Love means being willing to take care of someone, even if it means it changes your future in that same moment. L love means something more than just what the Hallmark card says. So what is it like to have a God who is, whose superpower, whose power is to be moved to compassion to love others. Sometimes for me, it's hard to talk about this kind of love without thinking about particular moments in time. One of those moments in time would be September the 11th. Another one that I was reminded of recently, I went and saw the documentary related to um, the 13th man, the bonfire collapse at A&M. Um, some of my strange connections to the bonfire collapse, it's not that I was an Aggie, it's not that I married an Aggie. Now, I married the child of an Aggie, but we'll go there later. Um, I've been to a game, I've seen the beautiful uh, uh, 12th man spirit, I've seen all of that kind of uh, beautiful uh, loyalty and uh, tradition. Um, in my first appointment, uh, we had a number of kids go off to college, right? Every year, that was something common. And uh, one of those kids was Nathan Scott West. Um, and uh, 20 years ago, uh, this past week, um, the uh, bonfire collapsed um, on the campus of A&M. And one of uh, the young men and women who were uh, trapped in the bonfire collapse and eventually lost his life was Nathan Scott West. Um, it was interesting to be in the moment as we cared for his family. It was interesting to be in the moment as we waited to find out. It was interesting to be the receiver of guests for his funeral, which um, we had so many people in that sanctuary that the choir got booted to the narthex because we put corpsmen from his uh, particular unit there. It was a powerful thing to notice that in the midst of thinking that uh, our college men and women are 10 foot tall and bulletproof, that they also uh, bruise, break, uh, and tragically can die when the world's hard edges come up against them. Uh, it was interesting, uh, Amy and I lucked into um, the, one of a viewing, a viewing that had the director and producer of the documentary there for questions afterwards. And it was interesting to talk to him about our connection and his connection. 
when we think about these tragic times, when we think about these moments that might have been our darkest hour or someone's darkest hour, it's easy for us to think, where was God in that darkest hour? Where was God in that moment of challenge and tragedy? I've often quoted uh, Fred Rogers uh, in response to 9-11, where Fred Rogers counseled kids to not look at the tragedy, but rather to look at those, the helpers, who are running towards, those who are running towards to help and to care. Where was God at our darkest hour? Quite possibly, he was standing there with you, supporting you, caring for you, and quite possibly carrying you as necessary. When we think about humanity's darkest hour, when the crowds roared with the screams of crucify him, when his disciples bolted for a hiding place and left Jesus holding the bag, when they whipped him and gambled for his clothes, when they hung him on a cross, when the crowds came by and taunted him with requests to save himself, at that darkest hour, God was bringing about salvation. At that darkest moment for humanity, God was having a coronation day. It's interesting. We expect God to be like a lion that devours our enemies, but Revelation talks about him as the lamb who was slain. Our uh, imagery around God as this superpower um, is probably very true because he created all that we know and he knows everything and he's omnipresent. But what makes God powerful is that God cares deeply for us. What makes God powerful is that God is moved to compassion for us. I often tell families when they lose a loved one that God is not absent, that God was not on vacation, that God was not looking away, but that rather in that moment as they grieve, God is standing right next to them, shedding tears because God knows what it's like to lose a loved one, having watched Jesus die on the cross. I wonder, it's strange to think about a God who is vulnerable, about a God who suffers. Uh, Joan Northam, a theologian that I really enjoy, she says that she's not so sure that she wants a God who suffers. She says if she was stuck in a pit with a broken arm in the middle of the night, what she wants and what she urgently needs is a rescuer with a very bright light and a long ladder full of strength, joy, and assurance who can get me out of this pit. Not a God who sits in the darkness suffering with me. But I want you to think about that. Think about it. An all-powerful king doesn't have to help the commoner. An all-knowing wise man doesn't have to take time to teach the children. And a strong person with a ladder does not have to stop and rescue you trapped in a dark hole with a broken arm. A God defined by power but not love is not a reliable rescuer because Power does not guarantee compassion. So friends, on this Christ the King Sunday, uh, I I wonder, uh, as you think about our scripture, in the beginning was the word. If you're a Bible student, that should make you think back to another chapter one of a book of the Bible, the first chapter, Genesis one. In the beginning was the word. What beginning? Yep, that one. Uh, We get a picture of how God was present, how everything was brought into being through the one we know as king, and how even as the light shined, the darkness did not overcome it. You know, when they crucified Jesus on the cross, the inscription read, either ironically or truthfully, 
This here is the king of the Jews. I think when we begin to realize that our king, our king is powerful, our king is wonderful, our king is all-knowing. But the heart of the gospel, friends, this day, is not about a pompous, self-centered king, nor is it about a burned-out old man who's left us to our own devices. Rather, it's about the power of God who turns crosses into crowns and tragedy into triumph, who is able to rescue us, and more than that, wants to. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.